One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa My name is Muhammad Jalal and I'm your host on the Thinking Muslim podcast. Two weeks ago, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India surprised the world by unilaterally withdrawing the constitutional arrangement that gave Jammu and Kashmir a special autonomous status. Not dissimilar to the Chinese province of Xinjiang, a matter we looked at last week, this autonomy was more symbolic than real with Indian governments of all hues dictating the terms of administrative power and heavily securitizing the region, subjecting ordinary Kashmiris to a life of harassment, arbitrary arrest, imprisonment and worse. Nonetheless, the move is unprecedented and paves the way to changing the demographic realities on the ground and ultimately absorbing Kashmir into Greater India. The repeal of Articles 370 and 35A by the BJP government, despite the consternation of the opposition in Parliament, preceded a lockdown in occupied Kashmir, restricting the movement of its population, the closure of public institutions, including mosques, and the total suspension of all forms of communications to prevent coordinated protest. Members of the pro-New Delhi government in Srinagar, Kashmir's capital, were placed under house arrest and a heavy Indian army presence reinforced Modi's commitment to carry through on what most felt until then was a mere empty manifesto promise. This week we look at why Modi decided to take this step now. In the first in a two-part programme we take a look at the politics behind the decision. It is often the case that the worldwide Muslim communities is expected to move from one crisis to another, numbed by the intensity of shocks we face the world over at the hands of dictators and democratic demagogues, of which Modi is just one variety. We often jump to action by way of collecting charity or chanting at protests, all of which may have a place and for sure help to reinforce our sense of commitment to our ummah, However, without a clear understanding of the political realities, we can often be overtaken by superficial emotions and empty sloganeering. And listeners, I'm not immune to such impulses. However, from the very first days of the message of Muhammad wasallam, Islam taught the believers to be fully aware of the world around us and to be cognizant of the plans of the world powers, both regional and global. The Messenger of Allah nurtured a deep understanding within the Sahaba, the majority of whom were young. This manifested in a profound belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator and sustainer of all, 
An understanding of Islam that produced a unique way of thinking and a reading of international relations that enabled these companions to formulate deliberate stratagems to create opportunities for the fledgling Muslim community, rather than just to respond to the plans of others. Within time, these companions became world statesmen, politicians and diplomats, representing Islam on the world stage with awareness and foresight. In our contemporary world, there is a need to develop such breadth of understanding so we don't merely respond to events in a way that consumes our energies, but rather by realising how this ummah has become the subject of one political scheme or another, and then to act in a way to reverse this wretched state of affairs. As I stated last week, this podcast aims to frame Islam as it should be, a universal faith that has a universal spirit. To rise to this challenge, we have to seriously consider how we view the responsibilities that come with it. Next week, in the second part dedicated to Kashmir, the show will take a look at events from the perspective of those who live in Kashmir and India, evaluating the Hindutva doctrine that drives Modi and large numbers of Indians and how this impacts upon the Muslim community. This week, I'm pleased to have Dr. Omar Khan to talk us through the emerging crisis. Omar is a risk analyst working in London, formerly of the University of London's Royal Holloway College Politics and International Relations Department. His research focus primarily concerns South Asia, and I am sure you will find his perspective refreshing. We are going to take a deep dive into the motivations surrounding Modi's decision, Pakistan's response, why current US negotiations with the Taliban are linked to the timing of the decision and China's role in responding to the crisis. I would advise, if you are not familiar with the geography, to take a look at the maps on my Medium article accompanying this podcast for some context to help you. I invite you as always to join the discussion. You may contact the programme either through my Twitter handle at thinking underscore Muslim or via my Medium page, details of which are in the description of this programme. Please do subscribe so you do not miss a show, and if you find today's content useful, please remember to share it with others. Alhamdulillah, I would like to thank all those that contacted me in this week to offer their support and advice. I ask you to continue this and to make dua for me and my guests. Dr. Omar Khan, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. It's good to be with you here today. Now, it's probably worth starting by saying uh, when we talk about Kashmir today, um, we're really referring to uh, Jammu and Kashmir, which uh, currently is occupied by India, and uh, India has this so called autonomous arrangement uh, it has had with the region since 1947. Uh, this is different to Azad Kashmir, which uh, belongs to Pakistan, um, and um, uh, India has no, uh, India has a claim of it, of course, uh, or a supposed claim, but it has no jurisdiction currently over uh, uh, Azad Kashmir, which, which, around, which makes up around a third uh, of Kashmir. Now, let me start by asking you, uh, what was the motivation behind Modi's, uh, uh, Modi's decision to, uh, to change the constitutional arrangements and to bring uh, Jammu and Kashmir uh, under direct uh, Indian control? Right. Now, uh, I'll just give a little bit of background on this, on this issue. Going back to the beginning of actually late 2018, in the run-up to the uh, Indian elections that occurred in uh, April, May of this year, uh, Modi did suggest in his campaign that he would revoke Article 370 and he would seek to remove the special status uh, for Kashmir under the constitution. Now, we know he was uh, running a very right-wing leaning, very Hindu nationalist, if you want to use that term, uh, platform. So this was something that he had promised in the election 
buildup. Now, suddenly, uh, what appeared to be out of the blue on August 5th, um, Amit Shah, who's the Indian Home Affairs Minister, he declared in the Lok Sabha, in the assembly, that the government would unilaterally revoke Article 370 of the Constitution. Now, what, what that is exactly is that Article 370 is the article of the Indian Constitution that is the basis of Jammu and Kashmir's accession to India at the time when the princely states were deciding which whether they wanted to join India or Pakistan or try to remain independent. So this is from the 1947 to 1949 uh, consolidation phase of the Indian Union. So Article 370 was enacted at that time. Now, what's relevant here is that it allows Indian-administered Kashmir, what's now Indian-administered Kashmir, to remain an independent jurisdiction, to have its own laws, to have its own elected officials, and to effectively remain autonomous from the Indian Federal Union, other than the critical areas of finance, defense, uh, foreign relations, of course, and communication, which actually means uh, infrastructure, highways, uh, rail links, and so on. So the federal state would integrate the physical reality of uh, Kashmir and handle its defense, foreign relations, and finance. Uh, finance meaning that the, the currency would be common, but all uh, on-the-ground decisions would be taken by elected officials from, from, the, from the valley in Jammu. Now, within Article 370, there's a sub-article, which is 35A. Now, this is very interesting because Article 35A suggests that the right to gain residency in the Kashmir Valley is the exclusive decision of the assembly, the constituent assembly of Kashmir. So the federal government cannot actually suggest who can go to Kashmir, who can buy property in Kashmir, who can uh, uh, be resident there. More specifically, it suggests that the demographic reality on the ground in Kashmir won't be altered by any involvement of the federal government. Now, some of the implications of this are, for example, that the areas which are predominantly Muslim have remained such, the areas that are predominantly Hindu have remained such. And there, there are other nuanced uh, differences or, or particularities. For example, uh, a woman, a woman who's born in Kashmir who decides to marry out of the valley uh, to another community loses the right to uh, hold property in the valley and her children also don't inherit uh, in the valley. So some of these issues, some of these particularisms have led the federal government to, if you like, take the case that this is an unfair uh, body of law. This, uh, the article is actually uh, counter to the provisions for every individual citizen that the, the Indian constitution makes. So this is some of the background uh, the, the thing to note here is that there is a demographic, religious, uh, if you like, reality on the ground that has been preserved largely on account of protections within the constitution that prevent others from coming in, taking land, becoming resident, uh, standing for local office or elections, uh, even, for example, having access to things such as uh, state-funded scholarships or some of the provisions made, it, uh, made for uh, recruitment for jobs in the federal government. So it's, it's given Kashmir a sort of autonomous status and a bubble, really, a bubble within the larger Indian Union, which they are, the Kashmiris are able to, for themselves, by themselves, uh, have that region to the exclusion of interference as they would view it uh, from outsiders. So that's sort of the background to 370 and 35A. Now, Amit Shah, so just, just on the other point before I lose my train of thought here, Amit Shah unilaterally revoked this. What, what, uh, he's the home minister. The significance of that is that it's very, very contentious in the Lok Sabha to uh, take this action. I mean, there's a strong sentiment 
within, of, of course, all Kashmir affect, uh, elected officials who are representing Kashmir in the Lok Sabha, not the local official that I'm talking about, the, the ones who represent Kashmir in the Lok Sabha, very strongly opposed to this, as are many other representatives from other minority areas who viewed the special status of Kashmir as sort of an aspiration for them. And we're talking about Assam and some of the principalities in northeast India. So you can see this has become a very contentious issue. And uh, the manner in which it was done has really set off a lot of political backlash against the, the Modi government. Two questions come from that. Firstly, um, uh, how real was this autonomy that was granted to uh, to Jammu and Kashmir, to Kashmir? Um, uh, I mean, it, it, is it fair to say that it was a symbolic uh, uh, autonomy rather than uh, on practical, in practical terms, it, it really did give um, um, devolved powers in a meaningful sense to, uh, to the Kashmiri people? And, and secondly, um, are you effectively saying that the aim of the Modi government is uh, similar, I suppose, to what's what's happening uh, across the border in in China? Uh, it's to change the the demography of a region uh, so that uh, Hindus uh, are a sizable minority, if not a, a majority, within time uh, in uh, in uh, Kashmir in particular. Well, you know, so it, it might help to consider the example of, uh, of the United States here. For example, here, the U.S. is a federal system, and each of the constituent 50 states are, theoretically, uh, autonomous. They each have their own constitution. They have their own legislatures, their own assemblies, and they are beholden to the United States in the areas of defense, finance, uh, well, those are the two critical areas, defense uh, and finance. Now, if you look at the practical relationship between the United, the, each individual state and the federal government, you can see that in the United States, there isn't really any autonomy in any practical sense for any particular state. You can travel through the states and there's a standardized, for example, currency tax regime and uh, you know the military moves around and defends uh, all parts of the United States with no concern or consideration for trouncing on the autonomy of, for example, Texas or California. So in the letter of the law, each state, constituent state of the United States is an independent republic, but in every practical sense, the, coalition, uh, the coherence between them is as smooth as you might say the counties in Britain, for example. So these are effectively administrative uh, demarcations more than uh, any sort of independent republics. Now, in the case of Kashmir, the uh, wearing down, if you want to use that term, the wearing down of any autonomy over successive years has led to a similar situation as for the states in the United States. However, it's very it's important to note that there are only two states within india that are muslim majority and kashmir is one of those so there's a certain political salience that comes from the autonomy even in on paper for for kashmir particularly since pakistan's whole case uh, regarding Kashmir is that this is the leftover uh, process of, uh, of from partition where the Muslim majority areas should have acceded to Pakistan, you know, in light of the two nation theory and, and all of that. So really the, the issue arises from the religious constitution, the constituency in Kashmir more so than the letter of the law in terms of how much autonomy the region had or, or, or didn't have. Right. And, and the point about demography. So is, is India trying to, uh, to reset, to reconfigure uh, the, the basic demographic makeup so, so as to 
dilute any claims uh, that Pakistan may have or secessionist movements may have in Kashmir uh, for for some form of independence or annexation to Pakistan? Well, clearly that is that is part part of what the Indian government is trying to achieve. But if for a moment, if I could just review some of the demographics on the ground, that might give a, a clearer picture of how stark uh, that reality is. Now, as we know, Jammu and Kashmir consists of three regions that we're talking about, Indian administered Kashmir. There's the Kashmir Valley, and that accounts for about 55% of the population of Jammu and Kashmir. And it's quite a small area, so it's only about 15% of the area. And that area is 97% or just under 97% Muslim. Then you have the Jammu division, which is about just under half of the population. And that area, the area of the physical area is about 25% of Kashmir. Now, almost two thirds of the population of Jammu is Hindu. And then you have Ladakh. Ladakh is a sparsely populated and by far the largest area in terms of uh, uh, square mileage. And it's a very stark geography, so there's not, not much population there. And that's about half populated between Muslims and, and non-Muslims, and non-Muslims including Hindus, Buddhists, and uh, Sikhs. Now, the, the interesting thing here is that within uh, Jammu, so Kashmir is predominantly Muslim. Within Jammu, there's a strong polarization uh, within that particular territory. So the southwest of Jammu is almost overwhelmingly Hindu. And the eastern northern part of Jammu, just under the valley, the valley of Kashmir, is more than two-thirds Muslim. So in aggregate, a lot of the Indian statistics that you look at, look at or what might see are in aggregate, the population is about, of the whole Jammu and Kashmir is about 66% Muslim. But that doesn't tell the story. The, the real facts on the ground are that there's immense uh, religious polarization in terms of the territorialization of religion. So the valley is almost exclusively Muslim. Western, uh, Eastern and Northern uh, Jammu is predominantly Muslim and Southeastern Jammu is, Southwestern Jammu, sorry, is almost exclusively Hindu. So you have stark uh, differences. Now, what that means practically is in terms of political representation, the Muslims would always dominate any representative form of government. So within the autonomy given to Kashmir historically up until now, its politics has always been dominated by a few Muslim families, and that has be, been a real sticking point for, for India and its failed attempt to integrate the region into the Union. So there's always been a very strong pro-independence movement in Kashmir, uh, largely protected, if you like, by the political structure, political setup, which is predominantly Muslim. And some would suggest uh, let me say, has a strong pro-Pakistan bias or pro-Pakistan leaning in terms of how it, it conducts its day-to-day uh, -day on the ground reactions to uh, the Indian militarization, for example, that we're seeing right now. So this is, the, this is the setup. Now, you can see that as a result of this, the, the government, the Indian government, would always have a quite, quite a weak hand in seeking to integrate the area politically given the representative nature of the, you know, the democratic setup in, in, India, in India. So it needs to change the reality on the ground to effectively integrate Kashmir. Just eliminating uh, its autonomy wouldn't achieve that because the area is predominantly you know, overwhelmingly Muslim. So what it has sought to do is in abolishing Article 370, and then abolishing within that 35A, giving, it gives the right to Indians, i.e. from the rest of the country, to buy land in and invest in the valley of, of Kashmir. And we've seen that from, from Modi in, in his pronouncements where he's encouraging 
some of the very large industries, some of the very prominent personalities to come to Kashmir. Obviously, he does it in a, you know, this is a beautiful place and this is a jewel. It's heaven on earth and Indians should come and they should visit and they should invest and buy property and so on and so forth. He's saying it in that context. But of course, what that is doing is seeking to change the physical demographic reality on the ground. And that is, as you pointed out in your comment, not unlike what is occurring in, in China. So yeah, there, there's a, a definite uh, similitude there. Jazakallah khair, that's, that's really clear. Now, it's also the case that the Indian government uh, wants to separate uh, Jammu from Kashmir. Uh, and so with the uh, repealing of uh, Article 370, uh, there is also uh, a move to bifurcate, to separate these two regions into separate administrative zones. How do you read this move? Yeah, so uh, part of this revocation, it, it goes hand in hand with uh, another uh, administrative reformation, which is the establishment of three unions. So what uh, the Indian government is trying to do is reconfigure the administrative setup as it is currently. So you have, for example, within Jammu, six smaller uh, subdivisions. And within Kashmir, you have, I think, three smaller subdivisions. So what it is trying to do is create what it calls unions. So you have the Ladakh Union, you have the Jammu Union, and you have the Valley Union. Now, what these try to do is, for example, in the case of the Jammu Union, create one administrative uh, unit between the Hindu majority southwest and the uh, <clears throat> Muslim majority northeast of Jammu. So by creating a uh, single administrative unit that amplifies the territorial representation of the Hindu majority, which was is until now been concentrated in one small part or, or a, a less than one third physically one third of the area of, of Jammu. So this amplifies the, the political projection in terms of the territory represented by that Hindu majority in terms of ele electoral representation. So that's what, what is uh, occurring there in, in the reconfiguring or recontusion uh, of the administrative setup into these three unions that, that have been talked about. That hasn't gone into implementation yet. It's, it's still a few months away, and uh, I'm suspect as to whether or not this will be able to be uh, implemented given the strong reaction to the revocation of 370 that we're seeing right now. So do you think India has uh, overplayed its hand? Um, I note that um, uh, a couple of days ago there was a... Uh, a Security Council uh, emergency or special meeting uh, convened uh, by by China and uh, uh, the uh, Pakistani government uh, seemed to be uh, suggesting that uh, the meeting was a uh, a, a breakthrough uh, in in its uh, in 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 responding to India's actions. Um, uh, I note this was the first meeting uh, on Kashmir uh, convened at the Security Council since 1971. So it, it seemed, uh, uh, you know, pretty significant. Um, uh, and, and, and I suppose China's role here, you know, China has um, uh, has made, uh, has uh, commented that it, it uh, uh, disagrees with the unilateral actions of the uh, Indian government and... Uh, China is regarded as a, uh, a great regional power uh, and uh, it of course has uh, a, a number of important relationships, uh, economic ties with, with Pakistan. Um, so for China to, um, uh, to make uh, such a move, uh, that, that seems pretty significant to me. What, what's your, what's your uh, reading of, of China? Um, yeah, I, I watched uh, the press conferences uh, the press statements after the closed-door Security Council meeting yesterday, and I noted that the uh, Chinese representative was quite, I don't want to say demure, but he did uh, limit his comments to previously iterated comments from China and from the Security Council. So effectively, there was nothing new 
from the Chinese position or from any of the other participants. They reaffirm their commitment to seeing a peaceful resolution to the dispute between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. Now, for Pakistan, I mean, they, the Pakistani representative claimed that this was a great diplomatic victory and that the plight of the Kashmiris was now heard at the highest levels of diplomatic representation and so on. And, and that is technically true, but nothing from that meeting uh, occurred that would have placed pressure on India to step back from its actions or to, to try to uh, reverse the revocation of 370 or any other such, uh, such action. So, On the so contrary, you, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I mean, do you think India would be pleased uh, with the outcome of the, uh, the special closed door session? I think it was uh, expected, and it it the outcome was was not beyond what India anticipated uh, and was ready to deal with. So, the for example, the Chinese representative spoke for about three minutes. The Pakistani representative spoke for about three minutes, and the Indian representative spoke for nearly 20 minutes, and he took questions from the Pakistani journalist. Now, the, the thing to note here is that nothing in what he said indicated, suggested that India felt any diplomatic pressure, India had been chastised, or India had uh, in, uh, in any way not been vindicated in, in as a result of the closed session. In fact, he went so far as to say that China and Pakistan were misrepresenting the conclusion of the closed door session. And in fact, the closed door session reaffirmed India's position all along. So, so what was behind China's uh, intervention? I mean, it seemed like uh, a, at least prior to the meeting, it seemed like a uh, a, a a pretty extraordinary intervention for China to call a uh, a Security Council emergency discussion on the subject, uh, but but as you said, the the outcome was predictable and it and it was less uh, it you know China's position post meeting uh, seemed to echo its its somewhat muted position pre meeting. So so why call the meeting in the first place? Yeah, there are a few points to uh, consider here. Firstly, China is emerging as the predominant power in Asia. And I mean predominant military power as well as predominant economic power. So when an issue like this emerges, it is important, almost incumbent upon China to make some representation of its opinion. The, the second thing here is that China has an historical military relationship with Pakistan. It has built up Pakistan's military in the last, say, 15 to 20 years. And prior to that, it had a technical relationship where a lot of technology transfer occurred between China and Pakistan to the extent that some have suggested it went so far as designing and helping test Pakistan's nuclear, uh, nuclear assets. Now, that's a close military relationship. Uh, at the same time, it has an over $100 billion trading relationship with India. And that's very important to, to China. Uh, and, and that's military uh, exports as well as uh, commodities and so forth. Now, China is in, if you like, the difficult situation of trying to have a very close relationship with two states that really don't get along and don't like each other. So what it has done is state clearly its territory, which is that it backs a peaceful resolution to the conflict, not saying more than that. At the same time, it hasn't chastised India. And at the same time, it has uh, reflected the uh, imposition of Pakistan upon it that comes from having that close relationship. So it's tried to meet all of its obligations, if you like, the diplomatic obligations, while maintaining a very important strategic relationship with Pakistan and an economic relationship with India. Isn't it, isn't it the case that China has also a land claim uh, in, uh, in Jammu and Kashmir? Um, 
So China, um, uh, it effectively has merged uh, a, a chunk of, uh, a part of um, uh, Kashmir into uh, the Uyghur Autonomous Region. And um, it also has a claim to uh, Aksai Chin, uh, which it it uh, uh, it uh, took from India after one of its uh, border disputes, um, and and um, so China does have a, a claim, and and I suppose from China's perspective, does it see uh, India's rather robust uh, unilateral move uh, to challenge that claim, in particular over Aksai Chin? Um, I think there's a few things to consider here. Firstly. China's, the area of uh, Kashmir that China has effectively taken over from India is well integrated militarily and infrastructure-wise into Xinjiang, as you pointed out. Not just the Aksai Chin conceded by Pakistan in the late 1960s, but the area that almost uh, led to a, a conflagration between China and India also in that period. Now, uh, I don't think, and I haven't seen anything to suggest that that is uh, part of the dynamic of the relationship between China and India anymore. Uh, I think the relationship between them far eclipses uh, any territorial uh, dispute and it has extended to, for example, now beyond uh, finance and economics and trade to joint military cooperation. We know that China and India have initiated joint military drills, joint anti-terror training, uh, as well as transfer of technology and intelligence and expertise. So we're seeing a wider relationship develop between China and India, one that China is keen uh, to maintain uh, going in that trajectory. Uh, of course, Pakistan uh, has also uh, become the host of uh, China's uh, Belt and Road Project. And um, I note that... Um, uh, the uh, the road to to Gwadar, the superhighway, uh, crosses Kashmir. Uh, the uh, Pakistan-administered Kashmir. What what part did that have to play? Yeah. Um, again, on on the ground, there are some realities that need to be called attention to. Now, uh, India's consideration, what India considers to be Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, extends beyond what we term Azad Kashmir or Pakistan-administered Kashmir, into Gilgit, Baltistan, and the northern areas. And that's a very large area. And, and that area acceded to Pakistan without any uh, uh, dispute and has been well integrated into Pakistan. And many people are actually unaware. I mean, the level of integration is such that many people are actually unaware that India has a claim to Gilgit, Baltistan, and the northern areas. So Pakistan and China effectively consider that as well as does the international community to be well integrated into and part of Pakistan. Uh, so that area needs to be considered a little bit separately, I think, from Azad Kashmir. Azad Kashmir is the area, administrative area of which Muzaffarabad is the capital. Now the road, the, the Karakoram Highway linking to the Kunjarab Pass uh, into China actually goes through the Gilgit-Baltistan area. And uh, the, that project, I mean, the entirety of that project is not just uh, an indication of the infrastructural and economic uh, integration that China seeks to achieve with uh, Pakistan. Much more than that, it is an indication of the uh, extent to which the international community, particularly China, considers the issues of Gilgit, Baltistan, and the northern areas to be resolved and not to be part of the dispute at all. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to Pakistan's position. Um, so it, it seems to me that Imran Khan um, uh, you know, came to office um, with, a, with a commitment to negotiating uh, the Kashmir problem. Uh, most recently on a visit to, uh, to the United States, uh, Kashmir was, an, uh, was a discussion point and of course, uh, uh, there was some um, disagreement as to uh, America's role um, as mediator in, in the conflict. Uh, but but it, until now, at least, Imran Khan's position has been very much to echo a, a somewhat diplomatic uh, 
uh, position and, and what some would argue to be a reasonable position uh, towards uh, the conflict. Now, that's changed in, in, in the last uh, week uh, since the crisis began. Uh, and Imran Khan has been using Twitter as a as a forum, I suppose, to um, uh, to vent his frustrations at at uh, uh, Modi's government and its Hindutva uh, ideology, and and you know there, there seems to be a lot of saber rattling, um, you know, from from uh, Pakistan's side. So how how do you how do you analyze Pakistan's position so far? Well, Pakistan has a uh, a very difficult task, a very difficult challenge in responding to to this. Uh, this stems from the reality of Pakistan itself. And I mean, the strategic geography, the physical reality of Pakistan is that it is uh, exposed. It is exposed to a, a 2,000 mile border with a much larger uh, country, India, with a massive conventional superiority and a nuclear superiority and so forth. And at the, at the same time, it is on the West bordered with Iran, which has a very large trading relationship with India, and Afghanistan, to which India has contributed something between three, like three to four billion dollars of aid and assistance, as well as a lot of infrastructure development and diplomatic representations, to say the least, not to mention intelligence and involvement in tribal affairs uh, in, in Afghanistan. So when we look at this scenario, we see Pakistan really sees itself surrounded. Now, what that means is that its external affairs and its relationship with India will always be predominantly determined by the military. Because the uh, physical reality requires Pakistan to have a very robust, uh, very visible, and very active in terms of exercises and uh, mobility, uh, massive defense buildup, armaments buildup in the, in the deserts in Sindh and in the plains of Punjab. So you have massive formations of tanks and air, superior, air support all along that, that part of the border. Now, part of that, and this is where we have to uh, realize that military thinking actually uh, imposes itself on Pakistan's uh, external and diplomatic relationships maybe unduly. Uh, part of that defense posture requires Pakistan to be seen by India as ready to initiate hostilities to any extent to deter any aggression from India. I mean, that, that's the way the situation is set up. So that reality determines pretty much what, what the options are for Imran Khan in terms of his pronouncements and his statements. At the same time, uh, he knows as a political leader that the military reality has to be successful in deterring every single time, one time it doesn't, and, and you have war. So this is not a perpetually sustainable uh, external relationship. So he's trying to reach out to uh, India at the same time maintaining a very strong military posture. And this is perceived on the Indian side as quite a, a weak hand for Pakistan to play. So all it needs to do to keep Pakistan at a diplomatic and political disadvantage is rebuff its diplomatic uh, overtures and outreaches while maintaining a very strong military posture itself that gives rise to the pre predominance or preeminence of the Pakistan military in the external affairs and the international relations thinking of Pakistan. So that's really interesting. Um, are you suggesting then that um, uh, Imran Khan's position is 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 fairly weak here? Um, on the one side, he has to project strength through uh, military posturing, but on the other hand, um, uh, he has to uh, seek a diplomatic uh, solution without uh, losing face. Uh, and so his uh, his most recent statements are no more than, uh, I suppose, symbolic statements that need to be made because uh, he is stuck between uh, these, uh, these uh, I suppose you can call them tensions, you know, one between diplomacy and, and another between 
um, uh, attempting to project some form of, uh, of, of military strength? Uh, precisely, uh, with the addition that both Pakistan, India, and indeed the international uh, community, uh, meaning China, the United States, and Britain predominantly, realize that there is no military solution. Uh, it's not possible for Pakistan to liberate uh, the valley, Jammu and Ladakh. Neither is it at all likely that India would be able to invade and then liberate Gilgit, Baltistan and Azad Kashmir. I mean, this is a static fixed boundary that is, is hot. I mean, we're talking about the line of control here. So there isn't going to be any movement on the ground. Both countries have resigned themselves, I think, to accept that as has the international community. However, neither government, neither India nor Pakistan, is politically able to say to its electorate and its legislatures that that is the position we are giving up on you know, the, the other side of the LOC and we are only going to be concerned with what is on our side. That is politically un unsustain an unsustainable position for any government in India or Pakistan to take. Yet, it is the reality on the ground. So we have, if you like, uh, to use the expression perhaps we can, uh, posturing. So we have a lot of posturing on the ground between India and Pakistan, each speaking to their constituency, neither willing to cross the Rubicon and uh, end up in a, in a hot conflagration. Right now, um, uh, America's position in in the conflict is is um, uh, somewhat ambiguous, I suppose. Um, of course, we had uh, Donald Trump suggest that uh, he was willing to mediate between the two sides, but but since the crisis began, um, you know, the the American position has has somewhat been muted and and it's uh, it's hasn't taken sides. It seems to me and and. From all accounts, yesterday's meeting at the Security Council um, uh, was notable in in the absence, I suppose, of of uh, you know a, a meaningful American statement. So, how how do you feel America views uh, this crisis? Well, interestingly, in in this particular administration, if one views the pronouncements from the White House, uh, I think one would be. Uh, really confused and one's head would be spinning in circles. I mean, uh, some of the things that, that uh, Trump has said uh, regarding India, Pakistan and Kashmir specifically are just appear uh, disconsonant with, with, with political trajectory and the position of, uh, of, of the United States uh, historically and going forward. Now, what I tend to view is the military's reaction. So there's a strong close military association or interaction between the leadership of uh, the U.S. military, uh, General Dunford, and uh, uh, General Bajwa from, from Pakistan. So there's a, there's a close, uh, I wouldn't say coordination, uh, but I would say there's a close exchange of information. And that largely revolves around intelligence and uh, uh, logistical support. Now. That relationship is intact, despite the pronouncement from Imran Khan about the autonomy of Pakistan and we won't be dictated to by the U.S., and despite his close rapprochement or approachment to, to China and its, uh, his new relationship uh, with, with Russia where he's purchasing, or Pakistan is going along a trajectory now of purchasing military equipment from Russia and uh, having exchanges of uh, training and uh, special forces groups training together and so forth, this new relationship, despite all of these dynamics, uh, the relationship between the United States and Pakistan still functions uh, in the military dimension. That is still there. Now, Trump's own statements really, I think, should be seen for what they are, which is, I think, I mean, I was watching once more last night, uh, Imran Khan's presser at the White House. And I'm not sure, to be honest, I'm not sure that the president realized what he was saying when he said that he was asked by Modi to participate as an arbiter between India and Pakistan 
And when he said that, that drew the response from Imran Khan. I mean, he, he sat up and he said, well, you'll have the prayers of a billion people if you decide to take that arbitration. Uh, I really think that was just for optics, for, for consumption. And there isn't really anything substantive on the ground with regards to arbitration on, on the part of the U.S. I think the U.S. has also resigned itself to accept and is seeking to impose on Pakistan to accept the LOC as a fixed border. And it doesn't want to see the destabilization of India through uh, a plebiscite or an independence movement in, uh, in Kashmir that would gain traction. Neither does it want to see the fragmentation of Pakistan, militarily speaking at this point, by seeing the uh, Pakistan lose control over Azad Kashmir, Gilgit, Baltistan, and the northern areas. So I think that dynamic between the U.S., Pakistan, and India is pretty static. Pakistan may, may have uh, limited leverage, but uh, one lever it does still have uh, is Afghanistan. Um, so talks between... Uh, the American administration and the Taliban are progressing, and it seems, it seems to me that uh, within a year there may be, uh, uh, a, or sooner there may be a, uh, a peace in Afghanistan uh, that leads to the withdrawal of uh, the majority of American troops and, and an end to America's longest war, and Pakistan's um, position in in the conflict is is. Uh, pretty central, right? Um, uh, at least traditionally, we know that Pakistan has supported the Taliban uh, and um, uh, America sees, uh, has seen the route to the Taliban through, uh, through Islamabad. And uh, by all measures, uh, the meeting currently taking place between the, the two, uh, between America and the Taliban could not have begun really without uh, the, the tacit approval, if not the, uh, the maneuverings of, of uh, the Pakistani government. Um, what role does, uh, well, first, I suppose, what, what role does Afghanistan play uh, in, in, this, in, in this crisis, if any? And, and secondly, I suppose, how do you see, um, uh, you know, Pakistan using Afghanistan as a as a form of leverage in, in relation to uh, the Kashmir crisis? Well, I think um, it's, it's important to consider the question of why uh, Article 370 was revoked on August 5th. I mean, what else was occurring in the relationship between India and, and Pakistan and in the region? Uh, Modi had won the election back in April, and there's nothing in the coming uh, months or over the next year on the political landscape that would suggest that this is something that needed to be done uh, sooner rather than later in terms of the domestic developments in India. So one of the clues that's, that uh, shed some light on this as to why this was done now is the status of the uh, negotiations in Afghanistan and the role that Pakistan has played or has not played more specifically in, in that dynamic. Now, uh, the United States has impressed upon Pakistan the importance of bringing all elements of the Taliban to the negotiation, negotiating table. Uh, Pakistan has until now suggested that the elements of leadership within the Taliban that it backs are coming forward to negotiate and that it has no control or leverage over those elements that are spoiling the negotiations. Um, the United States doesn't buy that. So the US military's position is that uh, it believes Pakistan has such infrastructure on the ground in terms of networking and intelligence apparatus and so forth that it can bring to bear upon all elements of the Taliban uh, the importance of joining this negotiation, negotiation process and specifically sitting down with the Ghani government. So the negotiations are at a stage where the Taliban are willing to sit down and talk to the Americans, and they have done so, but are still unwilling to talk to the Ghani government, which they consider to be just a proxy of the United States, and they 
imposing upon the U.S. in these uh, negotiations that they should talk directly to the U.S. and the U.S. should then impose upon uh, the Ghani government any decision reached. Uh, of course, that would suggest to the world and, and uh, to the U.S. electorate as well that the Ghani government was actually never a legitimate government and the United States was the sole political power in Afghanistan and that the negotiations between the Taliban and the United States led to the resolution. So that's a politically unacceptable outcome for, for the or unacceptable method for the United States. So it has imposed upon Pakistan the importance of uh, bringing all elements to the negotiating table. Now, Pakistan has dragged its heels. It has sent some forth and held back others. And then it uses the explanation that the Pakistan, the Taliban are far too fragmented to be able to expect Pakistan to generate a single political trajectory in this or amongst this uh, very diffuse, ethnically varied uh, insurgent group or insurgent uh, amalgamation of groups. Uh, that's where that uh, dynamic has kind of faltered. Now, by India taking the action that it has taken, it has suddenly put great pressure upon Pakistan to move forward in that relationship with the United States uh, and the Taliban, i.e. the negotiation relationship and forcing the Taliban to come to the table. How it has done that is by raising the diplomatic stakes and changing the reality on the ground, it is threatening to integrate Kashmir in a, on a medium-term trajectory that would cut off all claims, physical claims, that Pakistan could have to the Kashmiris and to uh, their plight by changing, as we talked about, the demographics on the ground and integrating Kashmir such that any claim uh, by Pakistan on Kashmir or on behalf of the Kashmiris would then be a claim the same as a claim on any other part of the Indian Union, and that would be totally rejected, and there would be no uh, involvement of any external multilateral commission, as, for example, the UN 39 Commission from 1948 calls for both parties to sit with an external power and, and suggest a resolution and suggest that then to the General Assembly. All of this would be off the table because the physical reality on the ground would have changed. Now, that threat forces Pakistan to either move forward in that relationship with the United States and then for quid pro quo have the United States come back to India and put pressure upon India to move off Article 370 or ease the rate at which uh, these unions are established and, and the process moves forward, or it turns its back on the United States, goes to China and asks or expects something from China in, in a similar vein, that's not forthcoming. So in, 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 the, in this context, seeing what we did yesterday, that suggests that the US, uh, that, that Pakistan really has only one card to play back against the, the Indians, and that, that is the United States. And the United States is holding out and saying that if you bring all of the Taliban to the negotiating table and we see some progress and they do talk to the Ghani government, then we'll see what we can do about uh, pressuring India to slow the rate of integration of, of Kashmir. This is the situation that Pakistan finds itself in. Right, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, however, um, India's position then would be to accept a de facto Pakistan administration in Afghanistan. If, if Pakistan has this leverage over the Taliban, uh, then in effect, you know, uh, Afghanistan would become a, a subordinate state uh, to to Pakistan, and and that would impact on on India's uh, regional strategy of of keeping Pakistan weak. Surely, yeah, that's a very good observation, and this amplifies the importance of. Pakistan, uh, of the Taliban, sorry, speaking directly with the Ghani government, because what that does is legitimize the Ghani government in the negotiations, and the Ghani government is a government in which the Indians have an undue amount of economic and political leverage, or influence, let's say. So you can see here that 
your your observation is is I think accurate. However, there is this other dimension and and of, of the direct negotiation between the Taliban and the Ghani government, and that's why the U.S. is stressing that so intently. Is the Ghani government uh, really just a, a you know a spider's web? You know, it it's similar to uh, Vietnam in the 70s, um, it's very likely that if the Taliban came to power in some uh, shape or form, you know, it may be a power-sharing agreement or a, a, a um, uh, you know, a, a, a parliamentary assembly which involves a contingent from uh, the Taliban. Within time, uh, the Ghani government and its successors would... Uh, would evaporate and and the Taliban would effectively be the power in 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 Afghanistan. Surely, uh, there's an, an additional thing to consider here, which is that the Ghani government, as it is as an administrative organization, yes, uh, granted it is failing to reach many areas of Afghanistan, but it does have representation and a degree of legitimacy in what we might call the northern areas. Uh, the the northern area representation uh, the northern area militia so for example you had the shamali ittihad the northern union which involved the, the tajiks the uzbeks and uh, the hazarajat in afghanistan the non pashtun uh, minorities and these in aggregate make up almost uh, 40 to 45% depends on which uh, statistics you you give weight to uh, of the country now those areas haven't effectively been penetrated by the Taliban. There are elements of the Taliban's representation in northern areas such as Kunduz, such as Baghlan, such as, uh, to a lesser extent, in Herat in, in the west. Uh, but you see that predominantly, or prim uh, predominantly, yeah, we can say that the Taliban haven't penetrated effectively the northern part of the country. So the card that the Ghani government has is that I might not have effective administration, but the Northern Alliance, the Shamali Ittihad, is a card that I can play against the Taliban dominating the final setup of any Afghan government. So part of the reason why the, that Pakistan has really dragged its feet in coming to the negotiating table or in pressing upon the Taliban rather to come to the negotiating table has been that Pakistan has tried uh, to, let me say, urge the Taliban to effectively assist the Taliban in seeking to penetrate the former strongholds of the, the Northern Alliance and establish some type of effective representation on the ground. That is still, uh, let me say that dynamic is still premature, and uh, until unless that comes to maturation, we can't expect the Taliban to have a dominant political representation in any final setup in Afghanistan. But uh, granted that they have a lot of influence on the ground in the south and center of the country, and in a final setup, they would have uh, significant influence. However, it is important to keep in mind that going back to the Zahir Shah's time, going back over the last 80 or 90 years, that has actually been the physical makeup of Afghanistan's uh, polity. Uh, the Loya the, Jirga, uh, the representative assembly, has had a large uh, Pashtun representation but has been dominated politically, uh, militarily, and economically by the uh, Uzbek, Tajik, and Hazarajat amalgamation or uh, coordination, which in its current iteration is called the Northern Alliance. So I'm not sure that what we're going to see is a Taliban government. I think what we will see in the end state is a government in which the Pashtun reality on the ground is represented by the Taliban. And just uh, one point to add here is that recently, uh, one of the people that has uh, personalities, political personalities that has been projected quite uh, heavily in Afghanistan is Hikmatyar. Now, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar is a Pashtun. He was the, the 
primary guerrilla leader against the Soviet uh, struggle from the Pashtun side and uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud being from the Tajiks. Now, he has come into prominence once more. That suggests this is a card that the Ghani government is playing against the Taliban to have division within the Pashtun representation that if you don't come to the negotiating table, don't think for a moment that you're the only representative of the Pashtuns because we have Hikmatyar and he has a very large uh, infrastructure on the ground, very large network amongst the Pashtun tribes as well. Uh, in the past, he has acceded or conceded territory to the Taliban. He's sort of, um, uh, let me say, developed or evolved a relationship with them. But this is largely because he didn't want to see division in the Pashtun uh, polity, largely because then it would just be too small. Either of the factions would be too small to dominate the Afghan setup. So he's realized that maintaining Pashtun unity on the ground in Afghanistan is essential for whoever ends up being the, uh, rep the leadership of the Pashtuns in the Loya Jirga. And it really looks like the Ghani government has that card to play against the Taliban. So I think we're not looking at a Taliban government. I think we're looking at a government in which the Taliban represent a significant portion of the Pashtuns the way the setup was prior to the Soviet invasion. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Omar Khan, and uh, thank you for uh, giving us your, your thoughts on, on the crisis today. All right, thank you very much for having me. I really found that fascinating, and uh, I hope you did as well. Um, if you have any comments, please do send them to me uh, via my Twitter handle, thinking underscore Muslim, uh, or you can send me a message uh, in the comment section on my Medium article that accompanies this podcast. But from me this week, wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.